from the ACLU. This is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. In 2017, Arkansas announced a plan to execute eight people in 10 days because the state's lethal injection drugs were about to expire. The first person executed was Liddell Lee. He was convicted of murder in 1995 and sentenced to death, but his trials and appeals were plagued by problems from the start, and a mounting body of evidence now points to his innocence. Our guest today is Cassandra Stubbs, director of the ACLU's Capital Punishment Project. She and her team have spent the last two and a half years investigating Lee's case, and today they're filing a lawsuit to finally uncover the information necessary to prove his innocence. Cassandra, thanks very much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Liddell Lee's case was a bit of a perfect storm. He was poor, he was black, he had an intellectual disability, and he had some shockingly bad lawyers. Can you start out by telling me some of the ways that Liddell Lee's case went off the rails? Yeah, I think the perfect storm is a really good way to think about this case in that he had what I think of as risk factors um, for getting the death penalty. You know, one risk factor is being black and poor. All too often we see that race plays a role in who gets the death penalty. And really poverty does in the most direct way, which is that it's very difficult sometimes to get a qualified lawyer. What we saw in Liddell Lee's case, while the problem of inadequate or poor defense lawyering is often a systemic problem that affects far too many cases, what we saw in his case was really pretty shocking in terms of the um, number of failures in his case. His lawyers who represented him at trial, the attorney general in the case said that they had a conflict such that Liddell Lee couldn't get a fair trial. The post-conviction lawyer who was charged with investigating Liddell Lee's life had just had four executions. He had this enormous capital caseload. He tried repeatedly to get a new lawyer added to the case. And then it turned out when you read the record that he was so intoxicated at the hearing that the the attorney general in that case came forward and said to the judge, please stop this hearing. I think you need to do drug testing of the lawyer in this case. Wow. You know, these are very um, extreme examples, but from day one until nearly the very end of his life, Mr. Lee maintained his innocence and never had lawyers to seriously investigate that. So can you just help us understand why all these indications of his innocence were ignored along the way? Why didn't his lawyers bring up this evidence? Why didn't this DNA testing happen? It seems like a very obvious thing that should have happened. Yeah, so I think there are really two issues there. One is what arguments were available that the lawyers could have made and should have made to the jury. It's interesting because Mr. Lee had two trials. And at his first trial, the lawyers put on evidence about Mr. Lee's alibi, that he was with his family and that he was at a store at the time when the murder took place. And in that first trial, the jury hung. They didn't convict. At the second trial, the lawyers did not put that evidence on. And Mr. Lee was convicted of capital murder and then sentenced to death. So some of it was evidence that was really known at the time. There were basic arguments like the crime scene was splattered in blood and Liddell Lee, by the state's own witnesses, you know, if they were right and they saw him and he was leaving the house, then he was wearing a white T-shirt and blue jeans and he did not have a drop of blood on him. 
the basic facts of the case didn't add up in a way that, you know, I think strong lawyering really could have made a case for a reasonable doubt. But aside from that, then there's a whole wealth of forensic evidence. And I think before even the DNA, let's start with the fingerprints. They lifted fingerprints from the places in the victim's house that would be the most likely to tell us something about the crime. Deborah Reese was tragically beaten to death. There was a wood bat found uh, lying near her. And I think all of the evidence and all the experts testified that she was beaten with that bat. There was evidence taken from the bat. There was evidence taken from the door frame. And part of that evidence included fingerprints. They ran those fingerprints. They compared those fingerprints to Liddell Lee, and they didn't match. Wow. He did not match those fingerprints. But what they could do today, and it would take them 10 minutes to do it, is load those fingerprints into the database that Arkansas and the federal government maintain of criminal suspects. That's an easy step to see whether there's evidence that someone who has a criminal history, who shouldn't have been in that house, was in that house and committed this murder. They had arrested him wearing a pair of tennis shoes. They said that the tennis shoes were consistent with a footprint found on a piece of paper near the bed where the victim, Miss Reese, was found. The shoes that he was wearing had small drops of blood on them. Well, Liddell Lee asked for that blood to be tested. They tested that small drop of blood, and it did not come back to Deborah Reese. Hmm. And since his trial, however, DNA has come a lot farther. And today, we could take those same shoes and we could do far more sophisticated testing that would tell us almost certainly whose blood that was. We've arranged to pay for the DNA testing. We're just asking the city to give us the access to these tests that would provide this information. But the court said that we didn't ask in time, right? So at what point did the ACLU and the Innocence Project get involved in this case? The ACLU got involved in the last couple of weeks in his case. And we initially got involved because we had been following this really unprecedented effort of Governor Hutchinson to schedule eight executions in such a short, compressed time. And we had been following the cases and we're trying to read about the cases because we were concerned that in this rush to execute, there are going to be legal claims that should have been considered. And just in reading the publicly available documents, I saw that Mr. Lee had a claim of intellectual disability that had been filed in the early 2000s and that he had never had a hearing on. The law is really clear that you can't execute a person with intellectual disability. And that was a sign to me that something had gone really wrong here. And we hired an expert to go meet with Liddell and evaluate him, and who did write a report about the fact that Liddell Lee likely had intellectual disability and that more investigation was required. But in the course of that, we started reading his case. And so as we became more and more concerned about what seemed like kind of a weak forensic evidence case against him and these very troubling questions about whether or not he was guilty in this case, we reached out to the Innocence Project. And they took a quick look and then also became concerned and jumped in. Despite all of these indications of his innocence, you'd mentioned Governor Asa Hutchinson was bent on getting him executed as soon as possible. And it set up this really 
dramatic scene where you were on one side hoping that the stay would be in place and the execution would be stopped. And you have the governor of the state watching the TV and the phone, hoping for the execution to go forward. Yeah, there was an incredible amount of pressure. And in fact, the three cases that were before Liddell Lee's cases had all been stayed by the courts. But Governor Hutchinson was really hopeful that we were going to see some of these executions happening. And that, you know, was just so demoralizing that we had this completely arbitrary schedule that was driven by nothing but drug expiration dates. We had trouble getting files. We couldn't get information about our clients' uh, medical records because the Department of Corrections was totally overwhelmed with having so many cases set for the same time. And then we have this political pressure of, let's go ahead and get one of these done, please. I can only imagine what it's like to actually have a client put to death, but the stay was rejected and he was executed. What then led to this lawsuit that we're filing now? One of the really horrible parts about being a death penalty lawyer is when you are coming close to the time of execution and you realize in those moments that it's a terrible experience, not not just for the person who has to imagine and experience their own death at the hands of the government, but it's it's just brutal for the family members. And, you know, one of the things that we felt really strongly about was that we would try to continue to answer these questions about Liddell Lee's innocence after his execution. We had talked with his siblings and agreed that we would try to see what we could do to really find the truth and see whether there was definitive evidence available of Liddell Lee's innocence. It was a commitment that we felt was important to Liddell and to his family. Well, it's quite powerful that you've been able to continue the fight for Liddell. And it strikes me that, you know, this is one case, a powerful case. Uh, One of my colleagues said for the capital punishment work, every case is impact litigation. And as you discussed, there's no other cases that we take where our clients' lives are quite literally on the line. So I can only imagine how difficult it is when they are put to death. But I want to think about a little bit this question of innocence, because that's what's animating our ongoing work. Uh, But we're also against the death penalty in any case, right? Like we're anti-death penalty. You're the project that you lead uh, campaigns against the death penalty across the country. And I'm wondering how the question of innocence really fits into that type of advocacy, because it's, it's obviously a deep injustice. But at the same time, we are against killing anybody, if the government killing anybody. So how do we straddle those two advocacy goals of, of making sure innocent people, of course, are not put to death, but also ending death penalty overall? I don't really see them as two independent goals. I think that they're really inherently related. And, you know, it's absolutely true that aside from any questions about Liddell Lee's innocence or guilt, it was wrong for the state of Arkansas to execute him. It did not make us safer. It did not bring us anything that would justify the taking of Liddell's life. We know that the death penalty doesn't deter, and we know that it's imposed for reasons that have everything to do with unfairness and arbitrariness. 
It has everything to do with race. It has to do with where your crime occurred, what county, and who happened to be the prosecutor. Those are the factors that drive the death penalty. The death penalty is unfair and unjust in every single case. Well, it seems like it's such a strange issue in the national dialogue. It tugs at some very core issues of morality and of life and of death. But I wonder if you can just touch on the public dialogue and the public understanding of this issue, because it does bring together some strange coalitions. You've got some churches and religious groups who are strongly against the death penalty, while others favor it. But it does feel like it has a different kind of resonance for people than other issues that are in the public debate. I think one general big picture note is that the public has moved on the death penalty. You know, we saw this year for the first time, the majority of Americans, when asked which they support, the death penalty or life without parole, the majority of Americans choose life without parole. And so the time when Liddell Lee was sentenced to death, 80% of Americans support the death penalty, and today it's a minority. That is a big shift. And part of how that shift has happened, I think, is because there are problems with the death penalty that move different groups differently. You know, as you suggest, there are people who are opposed to the death penalty for moral reasons. There are people who are opposed to the death penalty for religious reasons. The Pope made clear that the death penalty is not consistent with Catholicism, that's an important basis for some people for their opposition to the death penalty. But I also think that there are a lot of Americans who have just seen that in over 40 years of trying to fix the death penalty, trying to fix the racial bias, trying to fix the unfairness of it, trying to fix the problems with innocence, we've not been able to fix a single one of those problems. The death penalty is still applied unfairly. It's still racially biased. And it still fails to protect the innocent. Well, if the death penalty can't be fixed, then the point is then to eliminate it. And there has been some success in that, right? The number of people on death row is at a 27-year low. And so I'm wondering where you see us in terms of the trends. There have been some very positive steps. Lots of states have done away with the death penalty, while in other parts of the country, there have been these huge setbacks and, and a ramp up in executions. Where do you see the current moment in terms of our understanding of the death penalty? You said that most people are now against it, but are the trends going in the right way in a policy level? Overall, there's no question that the end of the death penalty is on the horizon. Overall, the momentum has been all one way. You know, when we look big picture at the number of executions, when we look big picture at the number of death sentences, when we look at the number of states that tolerate executions or allow the death penalty, all of those trend lines show sharp movement away from the death penalty. Today, 25 states formally outlaw executions. 21 of those states are states that, with New Hampshire being the most recent, that have repealed the death penalty or or found it unconstitutional. Four states have governors who've imposed moratorium and said that there won't be executions. Fully 25 states out of 50, you know, that's more than 10 states have shifted in the last decade, an incredible trend line and and movement away, formal movement away from the death penalty. And then as a practical matter, a much larger number of states simply don't engage with the death penalty anymore. They don't carry out executions. Now, there are a few outliers. And we saw Arkansas, you know, had this horrible wave where they tried to execute eight people in 10 days. And they successfully, from their perspective, executed four people, which was definitely four too many. And so there are these 
states, we see Texas continues to be an outlier in terms of carrying out uh, far too many executions. But overall, the country is moving away from the death penalty. And that's reflected both in public opinion and in policies in that we see these states formally repealing the death penalty. We see these formal moratoriums, you know, California, which has the largest death row in the country. The governor, Newsom there, declared a moratorium in very strong language, identifying these problems with the death penalty in California that California has never been able to solve. Well, it's thanks to you and your colleagues and your coalition partners that we are pushing in the right direction, using all different kinds of arguments and advocacy tools to try to end the death penalty. And I appreciate that you said that all the trends are in the right direction, but it seems like one big caveat is at the federal level. I saw that Attorney General Barr has called for the reinstitution of the death penalty at the federal level. Where does that stand? Yeah, Attorney General Barr, um, maybe taking a page from Governor Hutchinson, tried to schedule five executions over a very short period in December and January. As of now, those executions have been stopped. The warrants expired. And there are very serious questions about whether the protocol that Attorney General Barr adapted matches the requirements of federal law. The D.C. Circuit just had argument on that yesterday. Um, And so that litigation will have to go forward before any new execution, federal executions can be scheduled. But what Barr tried to do was fairly outrageous in that he tried to move forward with five executions at the same time as announcing new rules for how executions would be carried out. Um, When we haven't had an execution in the federal government since 2006, you know, there's really no explanation for this hurry up and execute and rush forward approach. It seems like there's this really complicated relationship between the positive moves on the state level and the national level. So you've been at this for a long time. Uh, And I heard you say in another interview that it's important not to be surprised when the work is hard. But I'm curious if there's anything that actually has surprised you about this work. I think that doing capital work is really such a privilege in some ways. Well, on the one hand, you have to see and challenge the kinds of injustice that, you know, if a movie were made about, you might think was too much, that it couldn't actually be like that. There are just such extraordinary obstacles that our clients and their families have experienced sometimes. But at the same time, you get to see and bear witness to these incredible stories of resilience and to really experience and be able to stand meaningfully with our clients and their families is really an honor. And how do you keep your optimism despite the challenges? I definitely think one important part about being an optimistic capital lawyer is to keep an eye on the long view because there can be just crushing losses in our clients' individual cases that make it very hard (laughs) to imagine going and taking another case. But I think that there is both just an extraordinary community of support that we get from our colleagues, but then also our clients' families and our clients' communities often are enormous messengers of support. And then I think There are projects that we work on, like we filed an amicus brief in the Washington State Supreme Court, and they wrote this 
fantastic opinion that really chronicled and did truth-telling about the system of capital punishment in Washington and those victories where we know that nobody else is going to be sentenced to death in Washington, that the Washington criminal justice system has broken the link between the death penalty and race, that the Washington criminal justice system can start to think about sentencing without this enormous albatross of the death penalty skewing every single sentence that's ever imposed in a criminal case. You know, that kind of change is really inspiring and makes it possible. And what can our listeners do? They might not be capital lawyers, but they're against the death penalty. Can we help them understand where they should focus their energy? You know, when Governor Newsom issued this broad proclamation imposing a moratorium in California, it's important that we thank Governor Newsom for that. And I think on the other end of the spectrum, when we see people like Rodney Reed, who have strong claims of innocence in Texas, it's important that we sign those petitions. It's important that we attend those community events. It's important that we let the state of Texas know that we don't want that execution to go forward. Well, it's great advice. And Cassandra Stubbs, thank you so much for joining us today. And more importantly, thank you for all of your important work on behalf of your clients and against the death penalty more broadly. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this one, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace.